At home, Granny Weatherwax slept with open windows and an unlocked door, secure in the knowledge that the Ramtop's various creatures of the night would rather eat their own ears than break in. In dangerously civilised lands, however, she took a different view. "'I really don't think we need to shove the bed in front of the door, Esme,' said Nanny Og, heaving on her end. "'You can't be too careful,' said Granny. "'Supposing some man started rattling the knob in the middle of the night?' "'Oh, not at our time of life,' said Nanny, sadly. "'Githa Og, you are the most—' Granny was interrupted by a watery sound. It came from behind the wall and went on for some time. It stopped and then started again, a steady splashing that gradually became a trickle. Nanny started to grin. "'Someone filling a bath?' said Granny. "'Or I suppose it could be someone filling a bath,' Nanny conceded. There was the sound of a third jug being emptied. Footsteps left the room. A few seconds later a door opened, and there was a rather heavier tread, followed after a brief interval by a few splashes and a grunt. "'Yes, a man getting into a bath,' said Granny. "'What are you doing, Githa?' "'Seeing if there's a knot-hole in this wood somewhere,' said Nanny. "'Oh, here's one. Come back here. Oh, sorry, Esme.' And then the singing started. It was a very pleasant tenor voice, given added timbre by the bath itself. "'Show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed.' "'Someone's enjoying themselves anyway,' said Nanny. "'Wherever I may roam.' There was a knock at the distant bathroom door, upon which the singer slipped smoothly into another language. "'Per via di terra, mare The witches looked at one another. A muffled voice said, "'I've brought you your hot water bottle, sir.' Uh, "'Thank you very much,' said the bather, his voice dripping with accent. Footsteps went away in the distance. "'Indicame la strada to go home!' Um, "'Splash, splash! Good evening, friends!' "'Well, well, well,' said Granny, more or less to herself. "'It seems once again that our Mr Slug is a secret polyglot.' Fancy, and you haven't even looked through the knot hole, said Nanny. Githa, is there anything in the whole world you can't make sound grubby? Not found it yet, Esme, said Nanny brightly. I meant that when he mutters in his sleep and sings in his bath, he talks just like us, but when he thinks people are listening, he comes over all foreign. That's probably to throw that basilica person off the scent, Nanny said. "'Oh, I reckon Mr Basilica is very close to Henry Slug,' said Granny. "'In fact, I reckon that they're one and the same.' There was a gentle knock at the door. "'Who's there?' Granny demanded. Uh, "'It's me, ma'am. Mr Slot. This is my tavern.' The witches pushed the bed aside, and Granny opened the door a fraction. "'Yes?' she said suspiciously. "Uh, the coachman said you were, um, witches.' "'Yes?' "'Maybe you could, um, help us.' "'What's wrong? It's my boy.' Granny opened the door further and saw the woman standing behind Mr Slot. One look at her face was enough. There was a bundle in her arms. Granny stepped back. "'Bring him in and let me have a look at him.' She took the baby from the woman, sat down on the room's one chair, and pulled back the blanket. Nanny Og peered over her shoulder. "'Hmm,' said Granny, after a while. She glanced at Nanny, who gave an almost imperceptible shake of her head. "'There's a curse on this house, that's what it is,' said Slot. "'My best cow's been taken mortally sick, too.' "'Oh, you have a cowshed,' said Granny. "'Very good place for a sick room, a cowshed. It's the warmth. "'You better show me where it is.' "'You want to take the boy down there?' "'Right now.' "'The man looked at his wife and shrugged. "'Well, I'm sure you know your business best,' he said. "'It's this way.' He led the witches down some back stairs and across a yard and into the fetid sweet air of the byre. A cow was stretched out on the straw. It rolled an eye madly as they entered and tried to moo. Granny took in the scene and stood looking thoughtful for a moment. Then she said, This will do. What do you need? said Slot. Just peace and quiet. The man scratched his head. I thought you did a chant or made up some potion or something, he said. Sometimes. I mean, I know where there's a toad. 
"'All I shall require is a candle,' said Granny. "'A new one for preference.' "'That's all?' "'Yes.' Mr. Slot looked a little put out. Despite his distraction, something about his manner suggested that Granny Weatherwax was possibly not that much of a witch if she didn't want a toad. "'And some matches?' said Granny, noting this. "'A pack of cards might be useful, too.' "'And I'll need three cold lamb chops and exactly two pints of beer,' said Nanny Og. The man nodded. This didn't sound too toad-like, but it was better than nothing. "'What do you ask for that for?' hissed Granny as the man bustled off. "'Can't imagine what good those would do. Anyway, you already had a big dinner.' "'Well, I'm always prepared to go that extra meal. "'You won't want me around, and I'll get bored.' said Nanny. Did I say I didn't want you around? Well, even I can see that boy is in a coma, and the cow has the red buggy, if I'm any judge. That's bad too, so I reckon you're planning some direct action. Granny shrugged. Time like that a witch needs to be alone, said Nanny, but you just mind what you're doing, Esme Weatherwax. The child was brought down in a blanket and made as comfortable as possible. The man followed behind his wife with a tray. Mrs. Og will do her necessary procedures with the tray in her room, said Granny haughtily. You just leave me in here tonight and no one is to come in, right? No matter what. The mother gave a worried curtsy. But I thought I might look in at about... No, no one. Now, off you go. When they'd been gently but firmly ushered out, Nanny Og stuck her head around the door. What exactly are you planning, Esme? You sat up with a dying often enough, Githa. Oh, yes, it's... Nanny's face fell. Oh, Esme, you're not going to enjoy your supper, Githa. Granny closed the door. She spent some time arranging the boxes and barrels so that she had a crude table and something to sit on. The air was warm and smelled of bovine flatulence. Periodically, she checked the health of both patients, although there was little enough to check. In the distance... The sounds of the inn gradually subsided. The last one was the clink of the innkeeper's keys as he locked the doors. Granny heard him walk across to the cowshed door and hesitate. Then he went away and began to climb the stairs. She waited a little longer and then lit the candle. Its cheery flame gave the place a warm and comforting glow. On the plank table, she laid out the cards and attempted to play patience, a game she'd never been able to master. The candle burned down. She pushed the cards away and sat watching the flame. After some immeasurable piece of time, the flame flickered. It would have passed unnoticed by anyone who hadn't been concentrating on it for some while. She took a deep breath and... Good morning, said Granny Weatherwax. Good morning, said a voice by her ear. Nanny Og had long ago polished off the chops and the beer, but she hadn't got into bed. She lay on it, fully clothed, with her arms behind her head, staring at the dark ceiling. After a while, there was a scratching on the shutters. She got up and opened them. A huge figure leapt into the room. For a moment, the moonlight lit a glistening torso and a mane of black hair. Then the creature dived under the bed. Oh, dearie, dearie me, said Nanny. She waited for a while and then fished a chop bone off her tray. There was still a bit of meat on it. She lowered it towards the floor. A hand shot out and grabbed it. Nanny sat back. Poor little man, she said. It was only on the subject of Grebo that Nanny's otherwise keen sense of reality found itself all twisted. To Nanny Og, he was merely a larger version of the little fluffy kitten he had once been. To everyone else, he was a scarred ball of inventive malignancy. But now he had to deal with a problem seldom encountered by cats. The witches had a year ago turned him into a human for reasons that had seemed quite necessary at the time, it had taken a lot of effort, and his morphogenic field had reasserted itself after a few hours, much to everyone's relief. But magic is never as simple as people think. It has to obey certain universal laws, and one is that no matter how hard a thing is to do, once it has been done, it'll become a whole lot easier, and will therefore be done a lot. A huge mountain might be scaled by strong men only after many centuries of failed attempts, but a few decades later, grandmothers will be strolling up it for tea and then wandering back afterwards to see where they left their glasses. In accordance with this law, Grebo's soul had noted that there was one extra option for use in a tight corner. 
in addition to the usual cat assortment of run, fight, crap, or all three together, and that was become human. It tended to wear off after a short time, most of which he spent searching desperately for a pair of pants. There were snores from under the bed. Gradually, to Nanny's relief, they turned into a purr. Then she sat bolt upright. She was some way from the cowshed, but... He's here, she said. Granny breathed out slowly. Come and sit where I can see you, that's good manners. And let me tell you right now that I ain't at all afraid of you. The tall, black-robed figure walked across the floor and sat down on a handy barrel, leaning its scythe against the wall. Then it pushed back its hood. Granny folded her arms and stared calmly at the visitor, meeting his gaze, eye to socket. I am impressed. I have faith. Really? In what particular deity? Oh, none of them. Then faith in what? Just faith, you know, in general. Death leaned forward. The candlelight raised new shadows on his skull. Courage is easy by candlelight. Your faith, I suspect, is in the flame. Death grinned. Granny leaned forward and blew out the candle. Then she folded her arms again and stared fiercely ahead of her. After some length of time, a voice said, All right, you've made your point. Granny lit a match. Its flare illuminated the skull opposite, which hadn't moved. Fair enough, she said as she relit the candle. We don't want to be sitting here all night, do we? How many have you come for? One. The cow? Death shook his head. It could be the cow. No, that would be changing history. History is about things changing. No. Granny sat back. Then I challenge you to a game. That's traditional. That's allowed. Death was silent for a moment. This is true. Good. Challenging me by means of a game... Is allowable? Yes. However, you understand that to win all, you must gamble all. Double or quits, yes, I know. But not chess. Can't abide chess. Or cripple Mr. Onion. I've never been able to understand the rules. Very well. How about one hand of poker? Five cards each, no draws, sudden death, as they say. Death thought about this, too. You know this family? No. Then why? Are we talking or are we playing? Oh, very well. Granny picked up the pack of cards and shuffled it, not looking at her hands, and smiling at Death all the time. She dealt five cards each and reached down. A bony hand grasped hers. But first, Mistress Weatherwax... We will exchange cards. He picked up the two piles and transposed them, and then nodded at Granny. Madam? Granny looked at her cards and threw them down. Four queens. Hmm, that is very high. Death looked down at his cards and then up into Granny's steady blue-eyed gaze. Neither moved for some time. Then Death laid the hand on the table. I lose, he said. All I have is four ones. He looked back into Granny's eyes for a moment. There was a blue glow in the depth of his eye sockets, maybe for the merest fraction of a second, barely noticeable even to the closest observation. One winked off. Granny nodded and extended a hand. She prided herself on the ability to judge people by their gaze and their handshake, which in this case was a rather chilly one. Take the cow, she said. It is a valuable creature. Who knows what the child will become? Death stood up and reached for his scythe. He said, Ow! Ah, yes, I couldn't help noticing, said Granny Weatherwax, as the tension drained out of the atmosphere, that you seemed to be sparing that arm. Oh, you know how it is. Repetitive actions and so on. It could get serious if you left it. How serious? Want me to have a look? 
Would you mind? It certainly aches on cold nights. Granny stood up and reached out, but her hands went straight through. Look, you're going to have to make yourself a bit more solid if I'm to do anything. Possibly a bottle of sucrose and aqua? Sugar and water? I expect you know that's only for the hard of thinking. Come on, roll up that sleeve. Don't be a big baby. What's the worst I can do to you? Granny's hands touched smooth bone. She'd felt worse. At least these had never had flesh on them. She felt, thought, gripped, twisted. There was a click. Ow! Now, try it above the shoulder. Ah, uh, hmm. Yes, it does seem considerably more free. Yes, indeed, my word, yes. Thank you very much. If it gives you trouble again, you know where I live. Thank you. Thank you very much. You know where everyone lives. Tuesday mornings is a good time. I'm generally in. I shall remember. Thank you. By appointment in your case. No offence meant. Thank you. Death walked away. A moment later there was a faint gasp from the cow. That and a slight sagging of the skin were all that apparently marked the transition from living animal to cooling meat. Granny picked up the baby and laid a hand on its forehead. Fever's gone, she said. Mistress Weatherwax, said Death from the doorway. Yes, sir, I have to know. What would have happened if I had not lost? At the cards, you mean? Yes, what would you have done? Granny laid the baby down carefully on the straw and smiled. Well, she said, for a start, I'd have broken your bloody arm. Agnes stayed up late, simply because of the novelty. Most people in Lankra, as the saying goes, went to bed with the chickens and got up with the cows. Er, uh, that is to say they went to bed at the same time as the chickens went to bed and got up at the same time as the cows got up. Loosely worded sayings can really cause misunderstandings. But she watched the evening's performance and watched the set being struck afterwards and watched the actors leave, or in the case of the younger chorus members, head off for their lodgings in odd corners of the building. And then there was no one else except Walter Plinge and his mother sweeping up. She headed for the staircase. There didn't seem to be a candle anywhere back here, but the few left burning in the auditorium were just enough to give the darkness a few shades. The stairs went up the wall at the rear of the stage, with nothing but a rickety handrail between them and the drop. Besides leading to the attics and the storeroom on the upper floors, they were also one route to the fly loft and the other secret platforms where men in flat hats and grey overalls worked the magic of the theatre, usually by means of pulleys. There was a figure on one of the gantries over the stage. Agnes saw it only because it moved slightly. It was kneeling down, looking at something, in the darkness. She stepped back. The stair creaked. The figure jerked round. A square of yellow light opened in the darkness, its beam pinning her against the brickwork. "'Who's there?' she said, raising a hand to shade her eyes. "'Who's that?' said a voice. And then, after a moment, "'Oh, it's, it's Perdita, isn't it?' The square of light swung towards her as the figure made its way over the stage. "'Andre,' she said. She felt inclined to back away, if only the brickwork would let her and suddenly he was on the stairs, quite an ordinary person, no shadow at all, holding a very large lantern. "'What are you doing here?' said the organist. "'I was just going to bed.' "'Oh, yes,' he relaxed a little. "'Some of you girls have got rooms here. The management thought it was safer than having you going home alone late at night.' "'What are you doing up here?' said Agnes, suddenly aware that there were just the two of them. "'I was looking at the place where the ghost tried to strangle Mr. Cripps,' said Andre. Why? I wanted to make certain everything was safe now, of course. Didn't the stagehands do that? Oh, you know them. I just thought I'd better make certain. Agnes looked down at the lantern. I've never seen one like that before. How did you make it light up so quickly? Uh, it's a dark lantern. There's this flap, you see, he demonstrated, so you can just shut it right down and open it up again. That must be very useful when you're looking for the black notes. Don't be sarcastic. I just don't want there to be any more trouble. You'll find that you start looking around. Good night, Andre. Good night, then. She hurried up the rest of the flights and ducked into her bedroom. No one followed her. When she'd calmed down, which took some time, she undressed in the voluminous tent of her red flannel nightdress 
and got into bed, resisting any temptation to pull the covers over her head. She stared at the dark ceiling. That's stupid, she thought eventually. He was on the stage this morning. No one could move that fast. She never knew whether she actually got some sleep or whether it just happened as she was dozing off, but there was a very faint knock at the door. Perdita! Only one person she knew could exclaim a whisper. Agnes got up and padded over to the door. She opened the door a fraction just to check, and Christine half fell into the room. What's the matter? I'm frightened. What of? The mirror! It's talking to me! Can I sleep in your room? Agnes looked around. It was crowded enough with the two of them standing up in it. The mirror's talking? Yes. Are you sure? Christine dived into Agnes's bed and pulled the covers over her. Yes, she said indistinctly. Agnes stood alone in the darkness. People always tended to assume that she could cope, as if capability went with mass like gravity, and merely saying briskly, nonsense mirrors don't talk, would probably not be any help, especially with one half of the dialogue buried beneath the bedclothes. She felt her way into the next room, stubbing her foot on the bed in the darkness. There must be a candle in here somewhere. She felt for the tiny bedside table, hoping to start the reassuring rattle of a matchbox. A faint glimmer from the midnight city filtered through the window. The mirror seemed to glow. She sat on the bed, which creaked ominously under her. Ah, well, one bed was as good as another. She was about to lie back when something in the darkness went... Ting! It was a tuning fork, and a voice said, Christine, please attend. She sat upright, staring at the darkness. And then realisation dawned. No men, they'd said. They'd been very strict about that, as if opera were some kind of religion. It was not a problem in Agnes's case, at least in the way they meant. But for someone like Christine, they said love always found a way, and of course so did a number of associated activities. Oh, good grief. She felt the blush start. In darkness. What kind of a reaction was that? Agnes's life unrolled in front of her. It didn't look as though it were going to have many high points, but it did hold years and years of being capable and having a lovely personality. It almost certainly held chocolate rather than sex, and while Agnes was not in a position to make a direct comparison, and regardless of the fact that a bar of chocolate could be made to last all day, it did not seem a very fair exchange. She felt the same feeling she'd felt back home. Sometimes life reaches that desperate point where the wrong thing to do has to be the right thing to do. It doesn't matter what direction you go in, sometimes you just have to go. She gripped the bedclothes and replayed in her mind the way her friend spoke. You had to have that little gulp, that breathless tinkle in the tone that people got whose minds played with the fairies half the time. She tried it out in her head and then delivered it to her vocal cords. Yes, who's there? A friend. Agnes pulled the bedclothes up higher. In the middle of the night? Night is nothing to me. I belong to the night, and I can help you. It was a pleasant voice. It seemed to be coming from the mirror. Help me do what? Don't you want to be the best singer in the opera? Oh, Perdita is a lot better than me. There was silence for a moment, and then the voice said, But while I cannot teach her to look and move like you... I can teach you to sing like her. Agnes stared into the darkness, shock and humiliation rising from her like steam. Tomorrow you will sing the part of Iodine, but I will teach you how to sing it perfectly. Next morning, the witches had the interior of the coach almost to themselves. News like Grebo gets around. But Henry Slug was there, if that was indeed his name, sitting next to a very well-dressed, thin little man. "'Well, here we are again, then,' said Nanny Og. Henry smiled nervously. "'That was some good singing last night,' Nanny went on. Henry's face set in a good-natured grimace. In his eyes, terror waved a white flag. "'I'm afraid Signor Basilica doesn't speak more porkian, ma'am.' said the thin man, but I will translate for you, if you like. What? said Nanny. Then how come... Ow! Sorry, said Granny Weatherwax. My elbow must have slipped. Nanny Og rubbed her side. I was saying, she said, 
that he was— Ow! Dear me, I seem to have done it again, said Granny. This gentleman was telling us that his friend doesn't speak our language, Githa. Eh? But— What? Oh, but— uh, Really? Oh, oh, all right, said Nanny. Oh, yes. Eats our pies, though, when he— uh, Ow! "'Excuse my friend, it's her time of life. She gets confused,' said Granny. "'We did enjoy his singing. Heard him through the wall.' "'You were very fortunate,' said the thin man, primly. "'Sometimes people have to wait years to hear Signor Basilica.' "'Probably waiting for him to finish his dinner,' a voice muttered. "'In fact, at La Scalda in Genua last month, "'his singing made ten thousand people shed tears.' I can do that. I don't see there's anything special about that. Granny's eyes hadn't left Henry, Signor Basilica, Slug's face. He had the expression of a man whose profound relief was horribly tempered by a dread that it wouldn't last very long. Signor Basilica's fame has spread far and wide, said the manager primly. Just like Signor Basilica, muttered Nanny, on other people's pies, I expect. "'Oh, yes, too posh for us now, just because he's the only man you could find on an atlas. "'Ow!' "'Well, well,' said Granny, smiling in a way that everyone except Nanny Og would think of as innocent. "'It's nice and warm in Genua. "'I expect Signor Basilica really misses his home. "'And what do you do, young sir?' "'I am his manager and translator. Uh, "'You have the advantage of me, ma'am.' "'Yes, indeed,' Granny nodded. "'We have some good singers where we come from, too,' said Nanny Og, rebelliously. "'Really?' said the manager. "'And where do you ladies come from?' "'Loncra.' The man politely endeavoured to position Loncra on his mental map of great centres of music. "'Do you have a conservatory there?' "'Yes, indeed,' said Nanny Og, stoutly. And then, just to make sure, she added, "'You should see the size of my tomatoes!' Granny rolled her eyes. Githa, you haven't got a conservatory. It's just a big window sill. Yes, but it catches the sun nearly all day. Ow! I expect Signor Basilica is going to Ankh-Morpork, said Granny. We, said the manager primly, have allowed the opera house to engage us for the rest of the season. His voice faltered. He looked up at the luggage rack. What's that? Granny glanced up. Oh, that's Grebo, she said. And Mr. Basilica's not to eat him, said Nanny. What is it? He's a cat. It's, it's grinning at me, the manager shifted uneasily, and I can smell something, he said. Funny, said Nanny, I can't smell a thing. There was a change in the sound of the hooves outside, and the coach lurched as it slowed. Ah, "'said the manager awkwardly. "'I, um, I see we're stopping to change horses. "'It's, uh, a nice day. "'I think I may just, um, see if there's room on the seats outside.' "'He left when the coach stopped. "'When it started again a few minutes later, he hadn't come back. "'Well, well,' said Granny as they lurched away again. "'It seems there's just you and me, Githa, "'and Signor Basilica, who doesn't speak our language, does he? "'Mr. Henry Slug.' Henry Slug took out a handkerchief and wiped his forehead. Ladies, oh, dear ladies, I, I, I beg you, for, for, for pity's sake. Have you done anything bad, Mr. Slug? said Nanny. Took advantage of a woman who didn't want to be took advantage of? Stole? Apart from lead on roofs and other stuff people wouldn't miss? Done any murders of anyone who didn't deserve it? No. Are you telling the truth, Esme? Henry writhed under Granny Weatherwax's stare. Yes. "'Oh, well, that's all right, then,' said Nanny. "'I understand. "'I don't have to pay taxes myself, "'but I know about people not wanting to.' "'Oh, it's not about that, I, I assure you,' said Henry. "'I have people to pay my taxes for me.' "'That's a good trick,' said Nanny. "'Mr Slug's got a different trick,' said Granny. "'I reckon I know the trick. "'It's like sugar and water.' Henry waved his hands uncertainly. It's just that, um, <laughs> if they knew, he began. Everything's better if it comes from a long way away. That's the secret, said Granny. It's, um, <clears throat> yes, that's part of it, said Henry. I mean, no one wants to listen to a slug. 
Where are you from, Henry? said Nanny. Really from, said Granny. I grew up in Rookery Yard in the Shades. They're in Ankh-Morpork, said Henry. It was a terrible rough place. There were only three ways out. You could sing your way out or you could fight your way out. Uh, what was the third way, said Nanny. Oh, you could go down that little alleyway into Shamlager Street and then cut down into Treacle Mine Road, said Henry, but no one ever amounted to anything who went that way. He sighed. I made a few coppers singing in taverns and such like, he said, but when I tried for anything better, they said, what is your name? And I said, Henry Slug, and they'd laugh. I thought of changing my name, but everyone in Aunt Moorport knew who I was, and no one wanted to listen to anyone called plain Henry Slug. Nanny nodded. It's like with conjurers, she said. They never called Fred what's the name. It's always something like the great Astoundo, fresh from the court of the King of Clutch, and Gladys. And everyone takes notice, said Granny, and are always careful not to ask themselves, if he's come from the King of Clutch, why is he doing card tricks here in Slice, population seven? The trick is to make sure that everywhere you go you are from somewhere else, said Henry. And then I was famous, but... You'd got stuck as Enrico, said Granny. He nodded. I was only going to do it to make some money. I was going to come back and marry my little Angeline. Who was she? said Granny. Oh, <laughs> a girl I grew up with, said Henry vaguely. Sharing the same gutter in the back streets of Ankh-Morpork kind of thing, said Nanny in an understanding voice. Gutter? <laughs> in those days you had to put your name down and wait five years for a gutter, said Henry. We thought people in gutters were knobs. Oh, we shared a drain with two other families and a man who juggled eels, he sighed. But I moved on. And then there was always somewhere else to go. And they liked me in Brindisi. And, and... He blew his nose on the handkerchief, carefully folded it up, and produced another one from his pocket. I don't mind the pasta and the squid, he said. Well, not much. But you can't get a decent pint for love nor money. And they put olive oil on everything. And tomatoes give me the rash. And there isn't what I call a good hard cheese in the whole country. He dabbed at his face with the handkerchief. And people are so kind, he said. I thought I'd get a few beefsteaks when I travelled, but wherever I go, they do pasta, especially for me, in tomato sauce. Sometimes they fry it. And what they do to the squid, oh, he shuddered. Then they all grin and watch me eat it. They think I enjoy it. What I'd give for a plate of nice roast mutton with, with clouty dumplings. Oh, why don't you say, said Nanny. He shrugged. Enrico Basilica eats pasta, he said. There's not much I can do about it now. He sat back. You're interested in music, Mrs Ogg? Nanny nodded proudly. I can get a tune out of just about anything if you give me five minutes to study it, she said. And our Jason can play the violin, and our Kev can blow the trombone, and all my kids can sing, and our Sean can fart any melody you care to name. A very talented family indeed, said Enrico. He fumbled in a waistcoat pocket and took out two oblongs of cardboard. So, please, ladies, accept these as a small token of gratitude from someone who eats other people's pies. Our little secret, eh? He winked desperately at Nanny. They're open tickets for the opera. Well, that's amazing, said Nanny, because we're going to the... Oh! Why, thank you very much, said Granny Weatherwax, taking the tickets. How very gracious of you. We shall be sure to go. And if you'll excuse me, said Enrico, I must catch up on my sleep. Don't worry, I shouldn't think it's had time to get far away, said Nanny. The singer leaned back, pulled the handkerchief over his face, and after a few minutes began to snore the happy snore of someone who had done his duty and now with any luck wouldn't have to meet these rather disconcerting old women ever again. He's well away, said Nanny after a while. She glanced at the tickets in Granny's hand. You want to visit the opera, she said. Granny stared into space. I said, do you want to visit the opera? Granny looked at the tickets. What I want don't signify, I suspect, she said. Nanny Og nodded. Granny Weatherwax was firmly against fiction. Life was hard enough without lies floating around and changing the way people thought. And because the theatre was fiction-made flesh, she hated the theatre most of all. But that was it. 
Hate was exactly the right word. Hate is a force of attraction. Hate is just love with its back turned. She didn't loathe the theatre, because had she done so, she would have avoided it completely. Granny now took every opportunity to visit the travelling theatre that came to Lancre and sat bolt upright in the front row of every performance, staring fiercely. Even honest Punch and Judy men found her sitting among the children, snapping things like, "'Taint so!' and "'Is that any way to behave?' As a result, Lancre was becoming known throughout the Stowe Plains as a really tough gig. But what she wanted wasn't important. Like it or not, witches are drawn to the edge of things, where two states collide. They feel the pull of doors, circumferences, boundaries, gates, mirrors, masks, and stages. Breakfast was served in the Opera House's refectory at half-past nine. Actors were not known for their habit of early rising. Agnes started to fall forward into her eggs and bacon and stopped herself just in time. "'Good morning!' Christine sat down with a tray, on which was, Agnes was not surprised to see, a plate holding one stick of celery, one raisin, and about a spoonful of milk. She leaned towards Agnes, and her face very briefly expressed some concern. "'Are you all right? You look a little peaky.' Agnes caught herself in mid-snore. "'Oh, I'm fine,' she said. "'Just a bit tired.' "'Oh, good!' This exchange having exhausted her higher mental processes, Christine went back to operating on automatic. "'Do you like my new dress?' she exclaimed. "'Isn't it fetching?' Agnes looked at it. "'Yes,' she said. "'Very white, very lacy, very figure-hugging.' "'And do you know what?' "'No, what?' "'I already have a secret admirer. Isn't that thrilling? "'All the great singers have them, you know.' A secret admirer? Yes, this dress. It arrived at the stage door just now. Isn't that exciting? Amazing, said Agnes glumly. And it's not as if you've even sung. Uh, who's it from? He didn't say, of course. It has to be a secret admirer. He'll probably want to send me flowers and drink champagne out of my shoe. Really? Agnes made a face. Do people do that? It's traditional. Christine, boiling over with cheerfulness, had some to share. "'You look very tired,' she said. Her hand went to her mouth. "'Oh, we swapped rooms, didn't we? I was so silly. And, you know,' she added, with that look of half-empty cunning that was the nearest she came to guile, "'I could have sworn I heard singing in the night. Someone trying scales and things.' Agnes had been brought up to tell the truth. She knew she should say— I'm sorry, I appear to have got your life by mistake. There seems to have been a bit of confusion. But, she decided, she'd also been brought up to do what she was told, not to put herself first, to be respectful to her elders, and to use no swear word stronger than poot. She could borrow a more interesting future just for a night or two. She could give it up any time she liked. You know, that's funny, she said, because I'm right next door to you, and I didn't. Oh, well... That's all right, then. Agnes stared at the tiny meal on Christine's tray. Is that all you're having for breakfast? Oh, yes. I could just blow up like a balloon, dear. It's lucky for you. You can eat anything. Don't forget it's practice in half an hour. And she skipped off. She's got a head full of air, Agnes thought. I'm sure she doesn't mean to say anything hurtful. But deep inside her, Perdita X Dream thought... A rude word. Mrs Plinge took her broom out of the cleaning cupboard and turned. Walter! Her voice echoed around the empty stage. Walter! She tapped the broom handle warily. Walter had a routine. It had taken her years to train him into it. It wasn't like him not to be in the right place at the right time. She shook her head and started work. She could see it would be a mop job later. It would probably be ages before they got rid of the smell of turpentine. Someone came walking across the stage. They were whistling. Mrs Plinge was shocked. Mr Pounder! The opera house's professional rat-catcher stopped and lowered his struggling sack. Mr Pounder wore an old opera hat to show that he was a cut above your normal rodent operative, and its brim was thick with wax and the old candle ends he used to light his way through the dark cellars. He'd worked among the rats so long that there was something rat-like about him now. 
His face seemed to be merely a rearward extension of his nose. His moustache was bristly, his front teeth were prominent. People found themselves looking for his tail. "'What's that, Mrs. Plinge?' "'You know you mustn't whistle on stage. That's terrible bad luck.' "'Ah, well, it's cause of good luck, Mrs. Plinge. Oh, yes.' "'If you did know what I'd know, you'd be a happy man, too. "'Of course, in your case, you'd be a happy woman, on account of you being a woman. "'Ah, some of the things I've seen, Mrs. Plinge. "'Found gold down there, Mr. Pounder?' "'Mrs. Plinge knelt down carefully to scrape away a spot of paint. "'Mr. Pounder picked up his sack and continued on his way.' "'Could be gold, Mrs. Plinge. Oh, could very well be gold.' It took a moment for Mrs. Plinge to coax her arthritic knees into letting her stand up and shuffle around. "'Pardon, Mr. Pounder,' she said. Somewhere in the distance there was a soft thump as a bundle of sandbags landed gently on the boards. The stage was big and bare and empty, except for a sack which was scuttling determinedly for freedom.' Mrs. Plinge looked both ways very carefully. "'Mr. Pounder, are you there?' It suddenly seemed to her that the stage was even bigger and even more distinctly empty than before. "'Mr. Pounder! Cooey!' she craned around. "'Hello! Mr. Pounder!' Something floated down from above and landed beside her. It was a grubby black hat with candle ends around the brim. She looked up. Mr. Pounder? she said. Mr. Pounder was used to darkness. It held no fears for him, and he'd always prided himself on his night vision. If there was any light at all, any speck, any glimmer of phosphorescent rot, he could make use of it. His candled hat was as much for show as anything else. His candled hat? He'd thought he'd lost it, but it was strange. Here it was, still on his head. Yes, indeed. He rubbed his throat thoughtfully. There was something important he couldn't quite remember. It was very dark. Squeak! He looked up. Standing in the air at eye level was a robed figure about six inches high. A bony nose with bent grey whiskers protruded from the hood. Tiny skeletal fingers gripped a very small scythe. Mr Pounder nodded thoughtfully to himself... You didn't rise to membership of the inner circle of the Guild of Rat Catchers without hearing a few whispered rumours. Rats had their own death, they said, as well as their own kings, parliaments and nations. No human had ever seen it, though. Up until now, he felt honoured. He'd won the golden mallet for most rats caught every year for the past five years, but he respected them, as a soldier might respect a cunning and valiant enemy. Um, I'm dead, aren't I? Squeak! Mr. Pounder felt that many eyes were watching him, many small, shining eyes. And what happens now? Squeak! The soul of Mr. Pounder looked at his hands. They seemed to be elongating and getting hairier. He could feel his ears growing at a certain rather embarrassing elongation happening at the base of his spine. He'd spent most of his life in a single-minded activity in dark places, yet even so... But I don't believe in reincarnation, he protested. Squeak! And this, Mr Pounder understood with absolute rodent clarity, meant... Reincarnation believes in you. Mr Bucket went through his mail very carefully and finally breathed out when the pile failed to disgorge another letter with the Opera House crest. He sat back and pulled open his desk drawer for a pen. There was an envelope there. He stared at it and then slowly picked up his paper knife. Slit a rustle. I will be obliged if Christine sings the role of Iodine in La Triviata tonight. The weather continues fine. I trust you are well. Yours, the opera ghost. M Mr. Salzella! Mr. Salzella! Bucket pushed back his chair and hurried to the door, opening it just in time to confront a ballerina who screamed at him. Since his nerves were already strained, he responded by screaming back at her. This seemed to have the effect that usually a wet flannel or a slap was necessary to achieve. She stopped and gave him an affronted look. 
He's struck again, hasn't he? moaned Bucket. He's here! It's the ghost! said the girl, determined to get the line out even though it was not required. Yes, yes, I think I know, muttered Bucket. I just hope it wasn't anybody expensive. He stopped halfway along the corridor and then spun round. The girl cringed away from his wavering finger. At least stand on tiptoe, he shouted. You probably cost me a dollar just running up here. There was a crowd in a huddle on the stage. In the centre was that new girl, the fat one, kneeling down and comforting an old woman. Bucket vaguely recognised the latter. She was one of the staff that had come with the opera house, as much part of the whole thing as the rats or the gargoyles that infested the rooftops. She was holding something in front of her. "'It just fell out of the flies,' she said. "'His poor hat!' Bucket looked up. As his eyes grew accustomed to the darkness, he made out a shape up among the battens, spinning slowly. "'Oh, dear,' he said. "'And I thought he'd written such a polite letter.' "'Really? Then now read this one,' said Salzella, coming up behind him. "'Must I? It's addressed to you.' Bucket unfolded the piece of paper. Aha, ha, 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 ha. Aha, ha, 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 ha. Yours, the opera ghost. P.S. Aha, ha, 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 ha. He gave Salzella an agonised look. Who's the uh, poor fellow up there? Mr. Pounder, the rat-catcher. Rope dropped around his neck, other end attached to some sandbags. They went down. He went... up. I don't understand. Is, th is this man mad? Salzella put an arm around his shoulders and led him away from the crowd. Well, now, he said, as kindly as he could, a man who wears evening dress all the time, lurks in the shadows and occasionally kills people. Then he sends little notes, writing maniacal laughter. Five exclamation marks again, I notice. And we have to ask ourselves, is this the career of a sane man? But, but, but why is he doing it? wailed Bucket. That is only a relevant question if he is sane, said Salzella calmly. He may be doing it because the little yellow pixies tell him to. Sane? How can he be sane? said Bucket. You were right, you know. The atmosphere in this place would drive anyone crazy. I very well may be the only one here with both feet on the ground, he turned. His eyes narrowed when he saw a group of chorus girls whispering nervously. You, girls, don't just stand there. Let's see you jump up and down, he rasped, on one leg. He turned back to Salzella. What was I saying? You were saying, said Salzella, that you have both feet on the ground, unlike the corpse de ballet and the corpse de Monsieur Pounder. I think that comment was in rather poor taste, said Bucket coldly. "'My view,' said the director of music, "'is that we should shut down, get all the able-bodied men together, "'issue them with torches, go through this place from top to bottom, "'flush him out, chase him through the city, "'catch him and beat him to a pulp, "'and then throw what's left into the river. "'It's the only way to be sure.' "'You know we can't afford to shut down,' Bucket said. "'We seem to make thousands a week, but we seem to spend thousands a week too.' "'I'm sure I don't know where it goes. "'I thought running this place was just a matter of getting bums on seats, "'but every time I look up there's a bum spinning gently in the air. Oh, "'What's he going to do next, I ask myself?' "'They looked at one another, and then, as if pulled by some kind of animal magnetism, "'their gazes turned and flew out over the auditorium "'until they found the huge, glittering bulk of the chandelier. "'Oh, no!' moaned Bucket. He wouldn't, would he? That would shut us down. Salzella sighed. Look, it weighs more than a ton, he said. The supporting rope is thicker than your arm. The winch is padlocked when it's not in use. It's safe. They looked at one another. I'll have a man guard it every minute there's a performance, said Salzella. I'll do it personally, if you like. And he wants Christine to sing Iodine tonight. She's got a voice like a whistle. Salzella raised his eyebrows. That, at least, is not a problem, is it? He said. Isn't it? Uh, it's a key role. Salzella put his arm around the owner's shoulders. I think perhaps it is time for you to explore a few more little-known corners of the wonderful world that is opera, he said.
The stagecoach rolled to a halt in Sartor Square, Ankh-Morpork. The coach agent was waiting impatiently. You're fifteen hours late, Mr. Reaver, he shouted. The coach driver nodded impassively. He laid the reins down, jumped off the box and inspected the horses. There was a certain woodenness about his movements. Passengers were grabbing their baggage and hurrying away. Well, said the agent. We had a picnic, said the coach driver. His face was grey. You stopped for a picnic? And a bit of a sing-song, said the driver, pulling the horse's feed bags from under the seat. You are telling me that you stopped the mail coach for a picnic and a sing-song? Oh, and the cat got stuck up a tree. He sucked his hand, and the agent noticed that a handkerchief was tied around it. A hazy look of recollection clouded the driver's eyes. And then there were the stories, he said. What stories? The little fat one said everyone had to tell a story to help pass the time. Yes, well... I don't see how that could slow you down. You should have heard her story, the one about the very tall man, the piano. I was so embarrassed I fell off the coach. I wouldn't use words like that even to my own dear grandmother. And of course, said the agent, who prided himself on his ironic approach, the word time-table never crossed your mind while all this was going on. The driver turned to look directly at him for the first time. The agent took a step back. Here was a man who had hang-glided over hell. "'You tell him," said the driver, and walked away. The agent stared after him, and then walked around to the door. A small man with a hunted look climbed out, dragging a huge fat man behind him, and gabbling urgently in a language the agent didn't understand. And then the agent was left alone with a coach and horses and an expanding circle of hurrying passengers. He opened the door and peered inside. "'Good morning, mister,' said Nanny Og. "'He looked in some puzzlement from her to Granny Weatherwax. "'Is everything all right, ladies?' "'Very nice journey,' said Nanny Og, taking his arm. "'We shall definitely patronise you another time.' "'The driver seemed to think there was a problem.' "'Problem?' said Granny. "'I didn't notice any problems, did you, Githa?' "'It could have been a bit quicker fetching the ladder,' said Nanny, climbing down, "'and I'm sure he muttered something under his breath that time we stopped to admire the view. "'But I'm prepared to be gracious about it.' "'You stopped to admire the view?' said the agent. "'When?' "'Oh, several times,' said Nanny. "'No sense in rushing round the whole time, is there? "'More haste, less speed, etc. "'Could you point us in the direction of Elm Street?' "'Only we've lodgings at Mrs. Palm's. "'Our Nev speaks highly of the place. "'He says no one ever looked for him there.' "'The agent stepped back, as people generally did "'in the face of Nanny's pump-action chatter. "'Elm Street,' he stuttered, "'but respectable ladies shouldn't go there.' "'Nanny patted him on the shoulder. "'That's good,' she said. "'That way we won't run into anyone we know.' "'As Granny walked past the horses, "'they tried to hide behind the coach.' Bucket smiled brightly. There were little beads of sweat around the edges of his face. Ah, er, uh, Pegita, he said. Do uh, sit down, lass. Um, are you uh, enjoying your time with us so far? Yes, thank you, Mr. Bucket, said Agnes dutifully. Good, good, that's good. Isn't, isn't that good, Mr. Salzilla? Uh, <laughs> don't you think that's good, Dr. Undershaft? Agnes looked at the three worried faces. "'We're all very pleased,' said Mr Bucket. "'And, uh, well, we have an amazing offer for you, "'which I'm sure will help you to enjoy it even more.' "'Agnes watched the assembled faces. "'Yes,' she said guardedly. "'I know you uh, have only been with us, well, hardly any time, "'but we've decided to... Um, Bucket swallowed and glanced at the other two for moral support. Let you sing the part of Iodine in tonight's production of La Triviata. <laughs> yes. Um, it isn't the major role, but of course it does include the famous departure aria. Oh, yes. Uh, there is, um, that is, uh... Bucket gave up 
and looked helplessly at his director of music. Mr. Salzella? Salzella leaned forward. What, in fact, we would like you to do, um, Perdita, is sing the role, indeed, but not in fact play the role. Agnes listened while they explained. She'd stand in the chorus just behind Christine. Christine would be told to sing very softly. It had been done dozens of times before, Salzella explained. It was done far more often than the audiences ever realised, when singers had a sore throat, or had completely dried, or had turned up so drunk they could barely stand, or in one notorious instance many years previously, had died in the interval and subsequently sung their famous aria by means of a broom handle stuck up their back and their jaw operated with a piece of string. It wasn't immoral. The show had to go on. The ring of desperately grinning faces watched her. I could just walk away, she thought. Walk away from these grinning faces and the mysterious ghost. They couldn't stop me. But there's nowhere to walk to, except back. Yes, er, uh, yes, she said. I'm very, uh, but, uh, why do it like this? Couldn't I simply take her place and sing the part? The men looked at one another, and then all started talking at once. Yes, but you see, Christine um, has has more um, uh, stage uh, experience. Technical grasp, stage uh, presence, uh, apparent uh, lyrical ability uh, fits the costume. Agnes looked down at her big hands. She could feel the blush advancing like a barbarian horde, burning everything as it came. We would like you, as it were, said Bucket, to uh, ghost the part. Ghost, said Agnes. It's a stage term, said Salzella. Oh, I see, said Agnes. Yes, well, of course, I shall certainly do my best. Jolly good, said Bucket. We won't forget this. And I'm certain a very suitable part for you will come along very soon. See Dr. Undershaft this afternoon, and he, he will take you through the role. Er, uh, I know it quite well, I think, said Agnes, uncertainly. Really? How? I've been taking lessons. That is good, lass, hmm, said Mr. Bucket. Shows keenness. <laughs> we're, we're, we're very impressed. But see Dr. Undershaft in any case. Agnes got up, and still looking down, trooped out. Undershaft sighed and shook his head. Poor child, he said. Born too late. Opera used to be just about voices. You know, I remember the days of the great sopranos, Dame Violetta Gigli, Dame Clarissa Extendo. Whatever became of them, I sometimes wonder. Didn't the climate change? said Salzella nastily. There goes a figure that should prompt a revival of the Ring of the Nibelungengang, Undershaft went on. Now that was an opera. Three days of gods shouting at one another and twenty minutes of memorable tunes, said Salzella. No, thank you very much. But can't you hear her singing Hildebrand, leader of the Valkyries? Yes, oh, yes, but unfortunately I can also hear her singing Nobbo the Dwarf and Eo, chief of the gods. Those were the days, said Undershaft sadly, shaking his head. We had proper opera then. I recall when Dame Veritasi stuffed a musician into his own tuba for yawning. Yes, yes, but this is the century of the fruit bat, said Salzella, standing up. He glanced at the door again and shook his head. Amazing, he said. Do you think she knows how fat she is? The door of Mrs. Palm's discreet establishment opened at Granny's knock. The person on the other side was a young woman, very obviously a young woman. There was no possible way that she could have been mistaken for a young man in any language, especially Braille. Nanny peered around the young lady's powdered shoulder at the red plush and gilt interior beyond, and then up at Granny Weatherwax's impassive face, and then back at the young lady. "'I'll tan our Nev's hide when I get home,' she muttered. "'Come away, Esme, you don't want to go in there. It'd take too long to explain.' "'Why, Granny Weatherwax,' said the girl happily, "'and who's this?' Nanny looked up at Granny, whose expression hadn't changed. "'Nanny Og.' Nanny said eventually. Yes, I'm Nanny Og, Nev's mum, she added darkly. Yes, indeed, yes, on account of me being a... The words 
respectable widow woman tried to range themselves in her vocal cords and shriveled at the sheer enormity of the falsehood, forcing her to settle for mother to him, Nev. Yes, Nev's mum. Hello, Colette, said Granny. What fascinating earrings you are wearing. Is Mrs. Palm at home? She's always at home to important visitors, said Colette. Do come in. Everyone will be so pleased to see you again. There were cries of welcome as Granny stepped into the scarlet gloom. What? You've been here before, said Nanny, eyeing the pink flesh and white lace that made up much of the scenery. Oh, yes, Mrs. Palm is an old friend, practically a witch. You, you do know what kind of place this is, do you, Esme? said Nanny Og. She felt curiously annoyed. She'd happily give way to Granny's expertise in the worlds of mind and magic, but she felt very strongly that there were some more specialised areas that were definitely Og territory, and Granny Weatherwax had no business even to know what they were.